Lord, this is your captain. It is an honor to speak to you today. And once more, we play our dangerous game. A game of chess against our old adversary, the American Navy. A great day, comrades. We sail into history. Sayus ni rushimi respublics vabiotniks vajia. Caterpillar engaging. Navikayarus. Caterpillar engaging. Welcome to episode 007 of Central Intelligence Cinema. Today we will be reviewing The Hunt for Red October, starring the original 00 himself, Sean Connery. But before we get started, I wanted to quick let you, the listener, know that we would absolutely love to hear from you. Whether it's a movie you'd like us to review, or a comment about the show, or really anything, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have a thought or idea or critique for us, please email us at cicdeaddrop at gmail.com. That's all one word, cicdeaddrop at gmail.com. And finally, we also would love to reach out and make new friends and listeners with this podcast. And something that you can do to help the show grow is going on iTunes and giving us a five-star review. This helps us show up higher on the search engine when people go to look for this type of content. So that would be an absolutely lovely thing to do if you were so inclined. But for now, it's time to get into episode 007, The Hunt for Red October. Take it away, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Solo. Bond. James Bond. Ethan Hunt. Felix Leiter. Ilya Kuriaki. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Remember... Nothing ever goes according to plan. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand on, sir. Do you expect me to talk? Yeah, baby! <laughs> Coming to you from an undisclosed location, deep, 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 deep down in the Atlantic Ocean next to some busted-up submarine? It's a Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, Mr. One Ping himself... <laughs> Ben Esslinger. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Yes, indeed. The Red October. That's what we're hunting for today. I'm very we excited. We're hunting and we have found. We have found it. You know, this is going to be an interesting one because this movie is actually really good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes. And there's going to be, it's going to be very hard to find any cracks in the pavement on this one. <laughs> there's a few but you're right it is a solid compared to all of the other movies that we have watched thus far yeah for our little show yeah this one is probably the most solidly constructed from a story standpoint this from is an acting standpoint and mm-hmm. a pacing standpoint yeah i think this is going to be the the second biggest gush fest that we've had since uh <laughs> since skyfall uh-huh. <laughs> But uh, welcome back to Central Intelligence Cinema. Back from this is our second one back from our break. I'm I'm very excited to get started and and roll into this and relive the 1990s yes, and, and all that good stuff. So, uh, but before we but, <laughs> but before we get too far into the hunt for Red October, let's uh, let's do a little intel report. Looking for a news story? Impress me. Transmitting CIC Intel dossier. They'll print anything these days. 
All right. So yeah, Intel report. Uh, nothing but bad, bad news. <laughs> Just a bunch of crap. It's all about that Rona, unfortunately. So well, uh, yeah. So the big, the big hubbub, the big news is uh, no time to die. Pushback yet again. This time yes, they're going to change the title. They're going to change the title to "No Time to Play." <laughs> they're they're going to change the title to "Much More Time to Die." <laughs> <laughs> so we've got now until April second of next year. So yeah, that's fun. Um, the other thing that it was such a head scratcher too. If it would have just happened if they would have just said oh we're pushing this back i would have been like okay i get it but they didn't do that instead a week and a half ago they put out a new trailer then they released mm -hmm. new character specific videos they had one for for Safin. they had one i think for madeline swan i can't remember if they if they got to any of the other ones they released new posters they revealed the track list for the music score from Hans Zimmer. They released the music video for Billie Eilish's No Time to Die theme yeah, song. Yeah. And they released a podcast, which they were going to have six episodes of that led up to the premiere of the movie. Not even to mention the fact that there are new ad campaigns out that just got dropped from Swatch. <laughs> they put out a new commercial for the Q Watch. They put out a really high-end looking commercial from Nokia for the phone. They've got like Nomi from No Time to Die, like looking all secret agent out there. And she's got the Nokia phone. And then this really slick DHL ad, which I actually really, I thought was really kind of cool, especially because they used uh, Nobody Does It Better in the actual- Did they really? Yeah, in the actual video. So it's like, it's a really well done. That one I, I highly recommend finding on on the uh, internets, on the YouTubes. But yeah, the okay. DHL ad was really cool. But it's like, okay, so you're going to green light releasing all this stuff and then a week and a half later you couldn't you didn't see you didn't see the writing on the wall not to drop a sam smith reference but <laughs> you didn't see you didn't see that <laughs> you didn't see that this was coming you know like instead nope just drop it all just drop it all i'm, I'm telling you man the broccolis are just like we're gonna lose money push it another six months and MGM, like the little tabby cat it is now, just kind of rolled over so that they could, you know, rub its belly. Yeah. And say everything was going to well, be Well, okay. I did. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I did see something about MGM and um, I want to say it's Paramount who's handling the, it's handling the distribution on the domestic side. I think it's Universal, actually. Or Universal. That's what it is. Yeah. And I know that that I think that's where all this why all this happened in the first place why mm -hmm. you know they released all this stuff and then and then they pushed it instead was because yeah. there was this disagreement of of when things were going to happen or whatever so i get the feeling that universal didn't care and mgm was like <laughs> and mgm was like no we can't release this movie right at this time it's not we're going to lose a ton of money so right well i, I don't i don't think that, that universal probably wanted to do that either I, I don't think anybody knows what to do anymore yeah no it's it's just it's such a weird new landscape we're in it's like who who friggin knows right and i mean you know universal they just launched that peacock platform but it's right. not really it's more NBC and less Universal, you know. So yeah, they yeah. don't they don't have a dedicated app like Disney does that they can dump stuff on, or you know Fox yeah. does like Disney has that they can dump stuff on, 
or Hulu, which Disney has, which they can dump stuff on. Right. Or even right. HBO Max, which Warner Brothers can just throw every DC or whatever movie, like, you know, I don't know, Dune on. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, they don't they don't have a native natural platform to stick it on. So they really kind of are stuck putting this movie in the theaters. Yeah. If yeah. they want to, if they want to reap the kind of money they're hoping for. Well, and speaking of Disney Plus, that's the other thing I did want to mention. Although I think this this news is, has been out there for a little while now, but Black Widow has officially been moved for mm -hmm. the second time, going from November sixth to now May seventh of next year. So that's the yeah, second buddy. time that that movie's been pushed. To no surprise, though. Although no. it is sort of surprising that that one, you know, they are hoping for a cinematic release of that one and not just pushing it to Disney Plus or, or well, doing the, the, you know, the $30 POV thing like they did with uh, Mulan. Well, you know, and I, I, meant, I meant to actually look at some of the numbers that that Mulan release did in China. Because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know. Well, I heard the movie China's, was not excellent. I heard it was okay. Well, they took I all heard, the music out. Uh, they got rid of Eddie Murphy's dragon. There, I mean, there's nothing about it that's even charming. It's just <laughs> cr crouching tiger, hidden Mulan is what it is. I think hidden Eddie point, Murphy, but... damn it. What happened to that? Um, <laughs> but, you know, China is such a huge market for the Avengers movies in particular mm -hmm. that if there's not an open gateway to get it out there, they're going right. to lose a lot of revenue by not being able to hit the Asian market like that. So, I mean, you could release it all day long at 30, 50 bucks in the U.S. And most people will probably pay for it. I would. Yeah. But we're not even responsible, I think, for 50% of the gross that that movie is going to make worldwide. Right. Yeah. I even think about, you know, going back to No Time to Die. I was prepared to foot the bill for 150 bucks to get a theater to right. myself where me and you could go and, you know, a couple other friends or whatever. But right. on the grand scale, it doesn't really matter because No Time to Die is going to make way more money over on the other side of the earth than, yep. than over here in the States. So, right. So that I think that's what's playing a lot into it. But I mean, it doesn't doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. Movie yeah. theaters are going to have to figure out how they're going to get their product out there if they can't put it where that normally goes. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely think this is going to be an ongoing, evolving thing. Right. An ever-evolving I mean, thing. I would not be surprised if Black Widow released a month earlier on Disney Plus because they figured something out. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at that either. And then uh, I just put this in my notes because there's so little going on right now because of the <laughs> because of this pandemic, I was just like, I suddenly thought about the Kingsman movie, the prequel, The King's Man. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. God, when was that supposed to come out? And so I looked that up. That was supposed to come out actually not too long ago originally. That was supposed yep. to be out on September 18th. And now that's uh, currently, tentatively, scheduled to release on, Febru <laughs> on February 26th of next year. So, which right. seems... Actually, honestly, that seems optimistic at this point. It's, yeah. Even No Time to Die's release seems optimistic, to be honest. Right. Uh, no, look, I definitely agree. Like, if you think about the flu season and when flu season generally tends to end, mm -hmm. you're you're right at that dividing line there. So, like, we could still be in the thick of a whole mess of shit. <laughs> yep. So. Yep. Uh, well, yeah. Again, like, it comes in... Movie studios have to do rethink their thinking. They, they yeah. just do. 
rethink their thinking. <laughs> and I mean, so, you know, they got stuff like, uh, uh, like AMC theaters, not, mm-hmm. not makers of zombies and meth dealers, but the actual <laughs> movie theater chain, which yes. is like the largest movie, second largest movie chain, I think in the world mm-hmm. at this point, they have an outlet for digital releasing on their platform already. They've been doing streaming movies and everything through the app where you normally buy tickets. And I'm pretty sure uh, Regal, which is the other big giant, also has something similar to that. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, you know, if the movie theaters want their share, maybe they should be establishing the platforms. That's a good idea. I had never right? thought about it that way. That absolutely. So that you're still going sense. to. Right. You're still going to AMC or you're still going to Regal because that's your favorite chain. And they're just running streaming digital versions of the movies rather than somebody having to run it through their own platform that they have. Or they could do it that way, too. Yeah. You know, in conjunction with it. I wonder what the startup cost involved in all that is. But regardless, you know, like you said, I mean, it's uh, they're going to have to figure something out. Or we could alternately just put teeny tiny little individual penalty boxes around each seat. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) You know, who knows? I mean, oh boy. Anyway, <laughs> well, should we jump hey, back I, into this? We should. I was just going to say one last thing. You know, if we keep going, uh, maybe we should just, it's for the Intel report, we yeah. should just review whatever the spy versus spy guys are doing in Mad Magazine. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so so I mean, this it's, week <laughs> it's never the it's never the same gag. I mean, you know, repeated <laughs> over and over and over again. Of course. So not. we could get like we get like quarterly intelligence because I think the magazine's quarterly now. So just keep yeah. that in mind. That's a that's a that's a tip for you in case we run out of stuff to talk about. It's a real firecracker <laughs> of an idea, there, the sure. Oh wow! <laughs> you know, if you if you if you put that on the paper, you're gonna make a ton of money, son. I don't even I don't even know what that means. <laughs> All right then. Well, let's get into some some Sean. Yeah, some Sean and Sam Neil. Yeah, from Sean. You know, like. I'm afraid I don't have a Sam Neill. No, I don't either. I have a slight Baldwin. (laughs) That's it. That's all I got. All right. Well, let's jump back (laughs) into this movie. From the best-selling novel by Tom Clancy, the most brilliant commander in the Soviet Navy. Remy has trained most of their officer corps. He's nearly a legend in the submarine community. The most deadly submarine ever built. This thing could park a couple of hundred warheads off Washington. Nobody would know a thing about it until it was all over. His plan is a mystery. A man with your responsibilities reading about the end of the world. We sail into history. And once more, we play our dangerous game. With our old adversaries, the American Navy. Ramius might be trying to defect. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in this mine? Battle stations. Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, James Earl Jones, Scott Glenn, Sam Neill. The Hunt for Red October. Okay, The Hunt for Red October, released in 1990, directed by John McTiernan of Die Hard, Predator, and the Thomas Crown Affair fame. He seems like a pretty capable guy. Yeah, he's had a good movie or three. Yeah, you know, a few good ones. We'll, we'll keep him. We'll keep him. Yeah. I mean, they're they're small indie flicks, but, you know, they're fine. <laughs> well, you know, they launched the career of such notable actors as William Sanderson, um, uh, uh, Jesse the Body Ventura, uh, uh, Bonnie Bedelia. Oh, and a, and, a, and a little English actor named Alan Rickman. I, 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 you know, he's appeared in a couple of other movies, but I don't really know if he's done anything big since then. And name doesn't ring a bell. Yeah. No. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, yeah, written by obviously Tom Clancy. Uh, screenplay was by Larry Ferguson. This is another movie where it's a screenplay adapter guy, basically. Donald Stewart is also credited on it for writing, but obviously, really great story. As far as photography, the director of photography was Jan DeBont, who has done a lot of stuff. Um, he shot Die Hard, Jewel the Nile. Flatliners, yep. Basic Instinct, Minority Report, and a ton of other things. He's pretty darn good at his job. Yeah, he's real good. He really knows what he's doing. And man, the I was so impressed with thinking about the fact that this is 1990 and they're shooting these submarines and obviously it's models, but man, they did a good job. Yeah. I think it's testament to in-camera effects. It is a testament mm -hmm. to the value of doing in-camera effects rather than trying to rely on computer, you know, right. wizardry. So. Well, and you know, we're, we're still what, four years away from Jurassic park, which really was the one that started that whole revolution. Right. But I mean, their, their solution to this, let's drag a model through a smoke tank and make it look like water. Hey, it, worked. it worked, man. It was, it was great. Right. When did, um, Star Trek Next Generation start. I'm trying to think. 87. 87. Okay. Because I was trying to think about some of the special effects that they did on Next Generation. Mm -hmm. And sort of, and granted, you know, we're dealing with two drastically different budgets here. But right. I, I was really, I mean, the only time I snickered even at all at this movie was at the very, very end when they're floating. Oh, well, you can see through it. Alec Baldwin's hair yeah, because of the green screen. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> but aside from that, there's nothing laughable about, I mean, well, and they must have, I don't know how they got all those big ships, you know, because we're about ready to roll into the numbers here. And the budget really wasn't that big for this movie. It's very modest. Yeah, modest $30 million, and yet they had big warships and aircraft carriers and... and Yeah, but, you know, that, that was them saying, hey, U.S. Navy, you want some free advertising? That is true. The Navy's true. like, sure. Yeah, recruitment. Right. Well, the, the notes said they even, they let um, Scott Shepard? I have never been able to remember this guy. Scott Glenn. Scott Glenn, yeah. There's a, re there's a reason why I can never remember Scott Glenn's name, but I'll save that for another day when we ever do maybe do that movie. I don't know. But um, John, Gl John Glenn, they, like the right stuff. Yes. <laughs> so I always because he played he played Alan Shepard in the right stuff. Right. So I always confuse Scott Shepard, Glenn John. It's been <laughs> that way since 1983. The poor guy. Uh, yes. eh, Scott Glenn. They actually let he he went on a cruise with an actual attack submarine. Oh, really? And the captain he the basically the captain said you're going to follow all of his orders as if you were mine for an entire week. Oh wow! So he would get the orders. He would get he would say what needed to be done, and then the crew wasn't to respond until Scott Glenn said they gave out the order to him. Wow. So, yeah, That's... so he said he based the majority of his character for Bart Mancuso on that sub-captain who later became an admiral, I think, uh, somewhere up in uh, the Atlantic Fleet Admiralty wow. up there. But yeah, I mean, they dove head on. They did the same thing for Sean Connery, too, with the British sub. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. I got to say, if I'm one of those subs or the other, I'm really wanting Sean Connery to be the captain on my sub. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> How amazing would that be? Yeah. <laughs> 
Starboard, full, full throttle. <laughs> what do they call those again? Crazy Ivans. Can we do one of those? <laughs> the last time I was on a submarine, they shot me out the tube while I was doing a James Bond picture. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Sorry, I derailed you. Yeah, it's okay, man. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Um, so yeah, this movie made just over two hundred million worldwide, which is not too shabby. That's basically six point seven times the budget of the film. So they made a killing off this movie, and no for thirty doubt. million dollars, like I said, I mean, it looks great. The movie looks fantastic. You could make that movie in the equivalent dollars today, I don't think. They'd be too many people trying to get too many CGI, this, that, and the others in it. Yeah. I mean, having two actors who probably weren't drawing a lot of cash off of that $30 probably helped. That's the thing that blows me away about that budget is I got to think that so much of that went towards Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin. I mean, well, wait a minute. Was Baldwin? Baldwin Baldwin He wasn't really that big yet. No, he was he he just come off of like I think Miami Blues. Yeah, I mean Sam Neill probably even got Beetle, more. <laughs> yeah, because I don't even think Beetlejuice wasn't until was Beetle, no Beetlejuice was no Beetlejuice was eighties, wasn't it? I thought Beetlejuice was after Batman though. Oh, I don't know. Which means it was it was in the nineties, but right. Um, I mean, regardless of that. He wasn't anybody, and I, I don't know. I did say anything in the notes, but I'm going to guess Connery went for points on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how. Well, at least his, uh, at least his hairpiece wasn't in the uh, budget. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A fine hairpiece it was. A fine hairpiece. <laughs> so what did you what did you tell me? It was a they they he initially got a twenty thousand dollar hairpiece, and then it had a a ponytail. And then they didn't yes. like that, and they, and somebody it got back to Sean Connery that it looked like what now? Do you remember what? Uh, as far as I remember, McTiernan said something to the effect that it looked like a dead animal on his head. Yeah, and, and then that he looked ba- ridiculous while he was wearing it, and it got back to Connery. And so then they ditched that. Yes, and went with an eleven dollar hairpiece. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So music, uh, the music was done by the late Basil Polidorus, who also has done, who's done quite a resume, including Conan the, I was about to say Conan O'Brien, Conan the Barbarian, The Blue Lagoon, Red mm-hmm. Dawn, Iron Eagle, and wait for it, RoboCop 3. That's <laughs> I right. I like it. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure, checking now, no, I guess I'm right. No, he did Starship Troopers. Oh, Basil Good old Basil. Good old Basil. Good old Basil. Mm, yeah, Basil. Mm. Yeah, Basil. Sprinkle some Basil yes. on that. It's delicious. <laughs> yes, uh, it makes the tomato sauce so much more tasty. <laughs> so Iron the, uh, Eagle. So we got our, our yeah, Iron Eagle. That's <laughs> that's a movie we're gonna have to revisit. <laughs> I wish there was one spy thing in there, just I so know. we could pull it in. Just so we could pull it in. Because that's a movie to talk about right there. (laughs) (laughs) So getting into the uh, Bond-ish guys and girls and all that sort of thing, uh, we've got Alec Baldwin, very young Alec Baldwin, as Jack Ryan. And he definitely plays up the more book smart and clever aspect of Jack Ryan and less of the physical stuff that they portray him as being through John Krasinski. Um, Yeah. 
he actually got the role because Harrison Ford turned it down. So because that I don't know. <laughs> He's quoted. He's been quoted as saying he turned it down because Sean Connery's role is more interesting. Oh wow, that sounds like Harrison Ford though. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. Was it he more interesting in the last movie you did with him, Indy? Ooh, kidney punch. <laughs> Just saying. I mean, I, I love me some Last Crusade, but, you know, I'm not quoting indie lines in that movie. I'm going, Junior! Yeah, exactly. She talks in her sleep. <laughs> we, <laughs> we named the dog Indiana. <laughs> but uh, I think Alec Baldwin actually did really, really well as Jack Ryan. He did a solid job. I mean, the funny thing is, is when I read the books, which I do, I, I've read all of Clancy's stuff up until he stopped writing himself and did ghostwriters along with his stuff. <laughs> right. But every book that I've ever read of his, Malik Baldwin is Jack Ryan in my head. Yeah. And uh, as he gets older in the series, he just becomes older Alec Baldwin. So at the end, he's Jack Donahue from 30 Rock, but he's still <laughs> Alec Baldwin. <laughs> hey, I mean, that works, man. I just, I really like the way he plays it. He plays it so like smart and just, just bookish. He plays the character the way the character's supposed to be played because Ryan's always yeah. supposed to be that guy in the middle of something he shouldn't be in the middle of. Yeah. Whereas like the like the new Amazon series, I feel like they just, it's like, let's turn him into an action hero. Well, uh, to give, you got to give Krasinski credit. He's still trying to come off as that guy. They he just does. made Jack more of a badass in the military than he was in the books. Right, right, for sure. Certainly better than Chris Pine's turn or Ben Affleck's turn, both of which. Yeah. Ugh. Less said the better on those. <laughs> exactly. So, and then obviously we've got Sean Connery as Marco Ramius. Yeah. And I actually think this is a great performance from him. Like as an actor, he's not, I mean, Agreed. granted, you know, Sean Connery brings a certain personality to all his roles, but I mm -hmm. feel like he does a pretty good job of portraying this specific character, even though he himself is a very large personality. He still is able to, granted, he's right. still got the Scottish accent, and there's a huge you know, dissonance between having a Scottish accent and being a Russian-slash-Lithuanian <laughs> naval you know, sea captain. But regardless of that, <laughs> personality-wise... It's it's dead on. He's definitely got it toned down from the usual Connery, yeah. which the character, again, is a very closed in, boxed in military type character. Yes. Who's doing something completely emotional, which I think for the characters is not necessarily something that he does. But the rest of the cast on the boat help him sell it immensely. Yeah. I, I do want to bring this up, though. There are like no women in this movie for more than five minutes. You know, we've got, Oh yeah. All we've got is it's the hunt for the red sausage fest. <laughs> I mean, it really is. All we've got is a really brief cameo of Jack's daughter, Sally. And then we've got five, you know, less than 30 mm -hmm. seconds really of Gates McFadden as Carol Ryan. Yep. And then, and then it's just all dudes all the time after that, sadly. I mean Come on, with given the amount of, so of shots that we have of gigantic floating phallus things underwater, <laughs> is anybody really surprised by this? <laughs> yeah, but that being said, the fact that it is a Sasha's Fest, we've got some great act. I mean, this cast is unbelievable. 
just going down the yeah, line, you've got Scott Glenn as Bart Mancuso. You've got Sam Neill as Captain Baroden. You've got James Earl friggin' Jones as Admiral Greer. And then you've got Tim Curry, Dr. Frankenfurter himself. As, That's right. As Dr. Pedrov. And I just, I love how idiotic he plays that guy. Like he just, uh-huh. he's just so, thinks he's smart, but he's so not smart. <laughs> right. Um, and then we've got a really young Stellan Skarsgård as Captain Tupolev. Oh, yeah. Who, wow. Like it was so crazy to see him that young just because really the only other movie I've seen him in in a big way was the girl with the dragon tattoo, the version that mm-hmm. the Daniel Craig was in. Seen him in Thor too. So yeah, we've got him in there. Then we've got Courtney B. Vance. I don't really know him very well as an actor, but man, he was so good at, as Seaman Jones in this. Oh, he, he's yeah. <laughs> he's one of the best I, bit roles in this whole thing. I love that. I know. Game. And then of course you've got uh, everybody's favorite Jeffrey Jones. Everybody's favorite <laughs> creepy principal. <laughs> Yeah, creepy principal, creepy dad. I'm not Jennings anymore. Yeah. There may or may not have been child pornography on Ugh. my laptop one Ouch. day. Ugh. Icky. <laughs> uh-huh. But despite that, turns in an incredible role for what he was in it for. Yeah. He actually came off as being a naval engineer. The way he talked about the doors, the way he naturally flowed into what that that's just it. But Kieran knows how to cast people yeah. and put them together. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. it is it is a tour de force of acting in this. I mean, even the people that we didn't list, just little bit roles of people, they're all yep. acting as if they're acting for their lives in this movie. Like right. they all right. just fully committed. Nothing seems half-assed. There's nobody just standing doing nothing. You know, well, you you yeah, if, and if then- you're you know, you're on the sub and you're watching this, all this stuff go down and everyone's always doing something. Even people who yep. are, even people who are looking on as someone else is doing something, they're like scratching their head or they're doing something in a way that's very genuine and like, like they're genuinely concerned. It's like, this is, there's right. real acting going on all the time in this movie. Well, that's the thing. The thing that I'm always amazed about with this film is that the military people act like military people. Mm-hmm. They talk like military people. They do the things that military people do in military situations. And then all of the CIA people do the exact same thing. So you're getting it almost feel I, I swear that there there are some people that have super bit parts that were actually military people where they filmed on the actual ships. Oh, okay. Um, like the guy that blew up the torpedo before it hits the ship. And then uh-huh. Greer's like, we were never here. This never happened. Right. That guy was, that guy was actually the skipper of that boat. <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So there are a smattering of them in there, but like the guy that played Mancuso's executive officer, he's just an actor, but I <laughs> swore to God, he was, I would have swore to God. He was the captain of the ship. They showed him how to be the captain of the boat. Yeah. You know, yeah, really good stuff. I love watching this movie because it's everything that Top Gun wasn't when it comes to the Navy. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize how good this movie was when it first came out, and I hadn't seen it in a very long time. And I'm really, really glad. I mean, this was, I'll just let the podcast listeners know that this was basically your idea to to, to do this one. And man, My responsibility. I, I am... <laughs> I am really, really happy that you suggested this one because after watching it a couple times, man, it just gets better every single time I watch it. Yeah. 
It really yeah. does. I mean, I, I pick up more on the humor. I pick up on little things here and there. It's just, it's good front to back. I mean, it all just checks out. There's nothing where I'm like scratching my head going, well, that's stupid. You know, like everything makes <laughs> sense. Like it's not, it's not like the last movie we reviewed where it was no. like, yeah, I mean, I mean, granted, you know, we're dealing with two vastly different types of stories, but regardless, this thing is airtight. No pun intended. Yeah. Well, <laughs> watertight. It's yeah, watertight. But, but only to 1,200 meters. After that, yes. we're going to have a problem. <laughs> uh, well, sh should we get into this bad boy then? Yes, indeed. So as far as the pre-title sequence, it's very short. We just begin with this computer-looking naval map, and we see just sort of the east coast of Nova Scotia, and there's this big text blurb. Uh, that sort of prepares us for what we're about to see in it. And I'll just read it off real quick. It just says, In November of 1984, shortly before Gorbachev came to power, a typhoon-class Soviet sub surfaced just south of the Grand Banks. It then sank in deep water, apparently suffering a radiation problem. Unconfirmed reports indicated some of the crew were rescued, but according to repeated statements by both Soviet and American governments... Nothing of what you are about to see ever happened. <laughs> and yet you have to read that in your head in James Earl Jones's voice. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they really should have just had him say that. But anyway, <laughs> that actually would have been that would have been fabulous. <laughs> so then we fade to the icy waters of the I'm I'm gonna ruin this name, but it's Paul Yarny. Paul Yarny, the icy waters of the Polyarny Inlet north of Soviet sub-base near Murmansk. And we see a rather uh, crinkly Sean Connery, <laughs> all the crinkles in his eyes and looking out <laughs> across the water. Basically, it's the northwestern tip of Russia in the Arctic Circle, so it's very cold. And of course, we hear in Russian that it's a very cold, hard morning. And we hear uh, Broden, a.k.a. Sam Neill, say that it's time. And Ramius says, yeah, it's time, except Russian. Pra, no, pra. <laughs> All very dramatic. <laughs> and then the camera stays put, but the uh, the sub keeps moving and the shot widens out and you realize that they're on this huge sub. And then that's it. And then we go to the title graphics, which are rather understated title graphics. And we just see some mm -hmm. uh, old naval war illustrations and all that sort of thing. I mean, it does the job. It's... Can I, can I say that the, the opening theme song is pretty great, though? It is. I mean, uh, that's the other thing. The, the music in this really, really works. I mean, it occasionally feels over dramatic, but at the same time, it does what it's supposed to do. It's really funny, too. It, this is, I know I'm going off subject, but I'm just going to say this because I saw this recently on Twitter. Somebody took some music from Live and Let Die, some of the action music from Live and Let Die. Okay. And they dropped it over the Spectre plane chase sequence up, you know, mm -hmm. up in the mountains. And it yeah. makes the and it makes that plane chase thing so much more exciting than <laughs> <laughs> than the original music that was used in Spectre. And it just really sort of proved to me just how much music matters in making something good. But yeah, I mean sure. Like, I do think that the music in this is really good, like the like the choral. Yep. So we get these old neighbor war illustrations that then sort of fade into what ends up being Jack's study. And as the camera pans, we see all sorts of 
historical books on war and maps and models. And just based on what it all looks like, I'm pretty sure this office smells like leather bound books and rich mahogany. It's very, indeed. it's very Mandan. It's, I'm sure he smoked many a pipe in, in this room. Um, anyway, so, so the camera pans across all this stuff and we see papers and things and, and we, we see a hand sort of chuck some papers into a briefcase. And then the camera pans to a very sullen looking little girl, his daughter, Sally. And then we see that, you know, Jack enters frame and he picks her up and sort of comforts her and tells her she should go to bed once he leaves and she's all pouty and he tries to sort of cheer her up, yada, yada, that sort of thing. Uh, meanwhile, he's then a we good see dad. he's being a good dad. We see that he's a good right. dad. So then, then we see uh, Gates McFadden sort of make her quick 30 second appearance, telling him that he's late for the airport. It almost it's like, what's the point? What's the point of even showing? I mean, well, I, I mean, I know what the point is, but it's just such a waste of a of a good actress. to. <laughs> right. Well, and I think so. So I don't remember if there was something that went into that. It was supposed to be a longer scene. Mm-hmm. But I think there was definitely something in the trivia that said the reason she took that small blurb was mm-hmm. because she was expecting to be in the in Clear and Present Danger next, oh. where her character would have had a much larger role. Oh, so they and were they were she, talking about doing sequel, yeah. Well, yeah, because they had already they they already wanted to have Alec Baldwin back. She was going to come back. Then he didn't want to come back. She was stuck on Next Generation, couldn't get out. And then when she could, they said that they didn't like the chemistry between her and Harrison Ford because Dr. Crusher and Han Solo, come on, that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> so they ended up getting Ann Archer to play the character. So uh, it's, the reason she took it was because she was anticipating there being more down the line. If it gotcha. Was she was investing for the future. <laughs> Indeed. So, so Jack's running late for his flight and, and all she really does is just say, you're late for your flight. Come on. So, so then we see London Heathrow and it's a very rainy night and it quickly cuts to Jack already on board the airplane. And the stewardess is almost insistent that Jack try and get some sleep. I'm not sure what's going on with that. Like they really, you know what it was? He didn't give her the return passphrase so he could get his videotape of the dancing culture (laughs) of the Ukraine. (laughs) That's what it was. Yeah, she was well, like, doesn't then, he doesn't he know what he's supposed to say right here? <laughs> I can't. I know it's him. I can't give him the. I can't give him the his mission unless he says the right he thing. He gives me the code phrase exactly. <laughs> I just I just like after all that, he kind of is a dick to her, you know. Turbulence, you know. Warm <laughs> yeah. air gets under the plane and bumps things up and down. Turbulence. And I just wish you'd go. Well, fuck you, sir. <laughs> I don't think he sounded too condescending. I actually thought he was just like so nerdy that he didn't realize that he was being such a like so and very right. Yeah. And he was nervous because he doesn't like turbulence. Right. He just yeah. So it's, just, it's very it's made very apparent very quickly that he hates fucking flying. <laughs> right. Which you know it's foreshadowing. It's important and that you understand that at the beginning of the movie for right. what comes later. Sure, yeah. So then we see uh, Dr. Ryan greeted by a serviceman at, <laughs> with a sign at Washington Dulles Airport, and they drive him to CIA, 
where he immediately meets up with uh, James Earl Jones, a.k.a. Darth Vader, a.k.a. Admiral Greer. You know what's funny about that? I don't specific. This is something that I've always noticed is I don't think he specifically called out as a black man in the books. Mm -hmm. But since James Earl Jones initiated that, James Greer has always been a black actor from that point on. It works. I mean, which I, I think is, I think it's great. It's kind of a nice addition to, you know, man, he kills it. Oh yeah. He's so good. <laughs> He's so good in it. He's, ab- I mean, it's James Earl Jones. Of course he did a great job. Um, <laughs> so we immediately sort of get the vibe that they're friends, that, Jack and, and Greer are, are friends and Greer's well aware that Jack hates flying. And he's like, do you get any sleep on the plane? And he's like, no, of course not. You know, so we get a little bit of personal talk. How's the wife and kids? So forth. Uh, but then Greer quickly steers the conversation and asks, what would prompt Jack to fly back to Virginia from England in the middle of the night? And that's when uh, Jack breaks out the photos from MI6 or British intelligence. I'm assuming it's MI6. If people don't know that on this podcast, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't, I don't really think they should be listening to this podcast. <laughs> right, exactly. So, <laughs> so he breaks out these photos of a Russian typhoon class sub called the Red October. He explains that it's bigger than a usual sub. It's captained by Ramius, Marco Ramius, <laughs> Ramius, Marco Ramius. <laughs> And that, <laughs> <laughs> and that Ramius takes out the lead boat of each new subclass. Uh, he's been doing this for the last 10 years. We learn that Ramius has trained most of their skippers, and they call him the uh, Vilnius Schoolmaster, which, I mean, that sounds important. <laughs> so anyway, at this point, Greer asks him about the doors on the sub. He, he's looking at the pictures. He noticed these doors and he's like, do you know what these doors are about? And Ryan <laughs> basically explains that that is the problem because he doesn't know what they are. And he's worried that the Russians have some new sort of technology, but he doesn't he doesn't know that much about actual submarine technology. He obviously knows a lot about uh, naval things. But, you know, he needs a specialist. So he asks to get in touch with his buddy, Skip Tyler, a.k.a. Jeffrey Jones. And Greer arranges for a car within 10 minutes. So obviously this is some some serious shit. And Jack is sort of like, whoa, like the fact that he set this car ride up so quickly. And suddenly that's when Greer lets Ryan know that the Red October has already been seen on radar leaving the Polignani Inlet. So obviously, yeah, strange things are already afoot at the Circle K. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, so from here, we cut to a submarine going through the water. Again, the models in this movie are just friggin' fantastic. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's very believable even now in 2020. We find out very quickly. It's the USS Dallas, a Los Angeles class attack sub that is currently a hundred miles Northwest of, uh, pull Yarny. pull Yarny. I'm going to screw this up over and over again. Like pull the Yarny little kitty cat, pull the Yarny <laughs> out of the bowl. <laughs> Northwest of Polyarni Inlet. So then we get our introduction to Seaman Jones, my one of my favorite characters in this whole thing, who's currently schooling this youngster on how to listen for important sonar stuff. And I think it's hilarious, just little minutia thing, that there's a roll of toilet paper mounted to the sonar control panel inside the sub. It's like a nice little touch of like, Yes, these guys really live on this sub all the time, so they're going to they're going to trick it out with things that they need on a day-to-day basis. 
That's right. And can I point out that this is about the scene where we first see the most egregious, stupid thing on this entire movie. Okay. And that is the world's loudest (laughs) dot matrix printer on a submarine that's supposed to be the most quiet submarine in the water. Oh, boy. They can hear Russian sailors singing, but they can't hear. (laughs) 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 Oh, Awesome. So annoying. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. The young and Seaman Beaumont. Seaman Beaumont uh, sends the data to, to the signal algorithmic processing systems, only to discover that Jones is basically messing with him and that the sound is just a whale. So, then this other officer comes in, or he's like a boss of something. I don't know. Yeah, he's the chief of the boat. Yeah, so the chief of the boat comes in. He tries to sort of stick up for the kid, bringing up some compromising moment that Jones had, who was apparently blaring some Pavarotti. According to the the chief of the boat calls it Pavarotti, but apparently the correct thing is Paganini. So no, 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 Cobb. Pavarotti is a tenor. Paganini is a composer. Yeah. But just as they're getting into this little story, this alarm goes off and they have to spring up and find out what just turned up on the sonar. So from here, we see uh, Captain Bart Mancuso. We see our first glance of uh, Scott Glenn. Also, really like him as an actor, just in general. Like, I've always liked him. I just think he's great. So we see him for the first time asking Jones what he thinks it is. It appears to be a submarine, possibly armed, so they start tracking it. But then we quickly cut over to the October, where the Russian seamen are quickly moving about, and we see Ramius making his way through to the main control area, where he's met by Sam Neill, or Barodin. Ramius is told that it's time to open the orders, and that there is a political officer in his quarters waiting for him. Apparently, this is sort of the protocol for receiving your mission on a submarine. Uh, you need like a captain and a political officer so that each one has a key to open the safe. And, and that way, there's not ever one person that can take control of a submarine or have <laughs> crazy <laughs> Soviet tactics. We'll, we'll see how well that works. <laughs> uh-huh. So Ramius is really irritated that the PO has made himself comfortable in his quarters and he feels like his privacy has been invaded and the the PO's kind of a dick and he's just like explains that privacy isn't a thing in the Russian Navy. And we get this uh, clever little way of having to not translate all the Russian in this movie because up until this point, we're hearing everything in Russian with subtitles. And so then suddenly PO is reading out of Ramius's uh, book. He's Ramius has some book. I, I forget what it is. The or, Bible. Oh, it's the, the Bible. Bible. All right. Well, it's the Bible. You, know, you, you, you might have heard of that book before. <laughs> One of them books. <laughs> One of them <laughs> religious books. So the PO is reading out of Ramius's Bible, and the camera zooms in until you just see his lips. And then from here, it sort of dissolves, and it pulls back. And the next thing you know, they're all talking in English. So it sort of is a nice little clever way to sort of do away with having to read subtitles for the whole movie. And it's funny. They purposely stopped it at Armageddon. Because yeah. Armageddon is the same word in Russian as it is. It's in pronounced English. the same in Russian and English. Ah. So not only was it a clever way to do that, they made the clever way clever. They they truly did their homework. <laughs> yes. So because John McTiernan, a badass. Yes, he is. <laughs> My God. 
So yeah, so now they're all speaking English and the passage that the PO is reading about is about the end of the world and Ramius is underlined some of the lines in it and sort of hints at the fact that Ramius doesn't like the idea of the submarine's tech in the hands of Russians and that just maybe he's got some intentions we don't entirely know about yet. Mm-hmm. And the PO is sort of suspicious because of what he's underlined and Ramius explains it away that it's his late wife's book. Then we get a little bit more back and forth where the PO, he just does a lot of politics and, and Ramius is this, you know, highly regarded captain who refers to the submarine as his. And the PO is just sort of like, well, it's not really yours. It's it's Russia's, you know, uh, so that and all that. So <laughs> anyway, you can tell Ramius is really annoyed by this guy. So they each get out their keys and they open the safe. And they get the envelope out that's got the orders in it. And it says that they are to meet with Captain Tupolev's boat to run some drills with the October's Caterpillar Drive, which we'll find out is a magneto-hydrodynamic propulsion system that is basically like a jet engine for a submarine with no moving parts, which makes it very, very quiet. Uh, So quiet that it's undetectable to passive sonar. But just as the PO is about to go tell the crew what their mission is, (laughs) Ramius kills him. And can I just say, man, that is a brutal kill. I mean, I know. And the way they filmed it and cut it, it looks just badass and lethal and cold hearted. And, yeah. you know, wow. You're left <laughs> almost waiting for a James Bond one liner. Seriously. You know? <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> you know, he's like, come along, Putin. Chop, chop. Looks like you've slipped on something deadly. <laughs> <laughs> so Ramius tries to make it look like an accident, like he slipped on his tea. he's drinking which sure okay i'll believe that (laughs) so so at that point he swaps out the real orders with a completely different set of orders and lights the other ones on fire which carry out his mission Uh, meanwhile we we cut back and we see jack at the u.s naval shipyards where he's talking to skip about what the doors on the october could be and that set holy i mean maybe that's actually that's probably an actual shipyard i don't know but I, I was thinking it was. I didn't see yeah. anything about it, but it sure looked like it was if it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great shot. I mean, it's just to see that big sub just hanging there. Like, the sets in this movie are just really, really well done. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we see the massive submarine being worked on, and there's sparks all over the place. And during this scene, too, we, we hear Skip say, like, how's your back? And it's just like the quickest, quickest reference to the fact that when the books, Jack Ryan's previous back injury that he received in a helicopter crash, which happened over Crete in Greece. I don't know the whole story. I'm sure you probably do because I know you've read the yeah, book. That's about the sum of it. Yeah. But it is sort of laughable considering that like in the, although I guess they, they bring it up later and they, and they sort of magnify the gravity severity of, of, of it. Yeah. The, yeah. the severity of what he went through, but Initially, when I was first watching this, I'm like, well, that seems to be making light of the lengthy recovery process that he had to like, you know, to do all this. So anyway, as Ryan and Skip are talking about what the doors on the October are, Skip realizes it could be a caterpillar, which implies that the Russians have finally figured out how to actually build one and that they'd be capable of moving hundreds of nuclear warheads to American shores without ever being detected. So, so that's bad. 
it's not not good yeah it's not optimal (laughs) no so after this realization we cut back to the october again where the po has been zipped up in a body bag and the always excellent tim curry as (laughs) dr petrov is insisting they go back to shore because they can't operate without a po and no man should be in control of all these missiles (laughs) right he's fabulous doing that role he really is the nevish Nevish, nervous doctor. He's just amazing. You just can't go wrong with Tim Curry. You just can't. Uh-uh. So obviously, Ramius is like, nah, I don't think so, bro. So, <laughs> so Petrov wants to radio base, and then Barodin sort of shuts him down on that avenue as well by saying that they're under strict orders to keep radio silence. And then Ramius grabs a nearby cook to have him as a witness when he takes the PO's missile key off of him, just to sort of seem like he is sort of being forthright about the whole thing and that he's not trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, do what he's actually doing. (laughs) So, so Petrov keeps objecting to this whole thing, but Ramius basically shuts him down, just sort of out machos him until he walks away sort of disgraced. And then we cut back to the Dallas where they're still tracking what they found on sonar and getting close to confirming what it is when the SAPS printer shows that what they found is in fact a submarine and one that has not been previously recorded. Um, They also mentioned something I missed the first time, and that's that if they stay directly behind the other sub and stay in its baffles, then the other sub can't hear them. I mean, that's that was news to me. That was, mm, technically, yes. <laughs> technically. Most it's... submarines have towed sonar arrays that go right. well behind the propellers for that reason. But yes, I mean, back in the olden days, before you had that kind of stuff, that they couldn't right. hear you if you were back behind where all the noise was at. Yeah, I wonder if this is like a... stay in his baffles, Seaman Beaumont. <laughs> Not if we stay in his baffles. Do you happen to recall what year Clancy wrote this novel? Uh, I think... I think the book actually came out in 83 or 84. Okay. Because I'm just sort of wondering Uh, if at that point, when he wrote the book, not when the movie came out, but when he wrote the book, if that technically was true, that if you stay in the baffles, you're not being able to be detected. I vaguely remember in the book that they used the same thing. Uh So maybe Toda Rays aren't the way they were back then, but they also mentioned Toda Rays in the book. So uh, I don't know. (laughs) Right. I I would have to say if Clancy said it was true, it probably was. Right. Because, I mean, I'm no naval engineer other than, you know, (laughs) Starfleet engineering I might be able to get you by on. But real actual engineering? Nah, nah. You want to know how a warp drive works? I'm your man. You want to know how a nuclear power plant works? Not a clue. (laughs) So, but, you know, movies. Right. You know, considering the egregious things that we've seen in all the other movies we've reviewed, I'm just Uh fine with this one. (laughs) I'm okay with it. (laughs) Yeah. So then we see Ramius make his way to the main control deck where he explains the orders, quote unquote, orders to the crew in a rather big and blusterous way. You know, he sort of tries to get them all get them all psyched up, get the crew all psyched up. And he does a really good job of it too. It's very, mm-hmm. it's very convincing. It's one of Connery's better scenes, I think, in the movie where he just plays up that captain role very, very well. Yeah, well, they gave him two really good, not soliloquies, but monologues. Right. This was the other one, or the first mm-hmm. one. The second one's when he's in the his quarters with Boradin yeah. towards the end. 
But, I mean, he really gets to pull that gravitas that you don't normally get to see Sean Connery pull out of his quiver yeah, very yeah. often. Yeah, it's great stuff. So basically, the orders are that they're going to engage the silent engines and slip past their own ships, slip past the American patrols, attack a major U.S. city. Well, he's, they're going to do attack drills on a U.S. city, not going to actually <laughs> yeah. attack so, the city. You've changed the entire <laughs> plot of the story by omitting the word yes. drills. Yes. Attack <laughs> drills. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> Just so everyone knows, they're drills. <laughs> so so, so they, they're to do attack drills and then slip away to Havana afterwards. And yeah, and the, the <laughs> basically insinuating that they're all going to go get laid afterwards. So Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. So the sailors all get very patriotic and happy at this point and they start singing, which is fun cuz at this point the ship disappears from the USS Dallas's sonar. But uh good old Jonesy, he thinks he hears singing, but he can't actually confirm it. He does know it wasn't Pavarotti though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The Red October detects the Dallas and Baroden sort of wonders if they should stop singing, but the Dallas doesn't correct course to follow the October. So Sean Connery's like, nah, just let them sing. Just let them. Let them sing. So Lace the roof. <laughs> that I want to see. I want to see Sean Connery doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, then, so then we cut to the Red Fleet political dick. Oh my goodness, that's a mouthful. Directorate? Directorate. The, the Red Fleet Political Directorate in Moscow, where we see uh, who I, yeah. where we see who I can only guess is the head of the Russian Navy making his mm -hmm. way to his office and everyone saying hi to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where his assistant <laughs> uh lets him know that he got a letter from Marco Ramius, and he's like, Ramius. So he opens that and he reads the letter. And it's he's so shell-shocked by the letter that he spills his tea because obviously the letter says all kinds of bad things. But we don't know what those bad things are yet. Now, you know, it's an interesting thing in this scene. The, the letter opener that he has, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a broken sword mm -hmm. that he slices the envelope open with. That's actually from the book. Oh, really? That naval officer broke the sword in some capacity. I don't remember how. But the Clancy literally says he had it converted into a letter opener to remind him of how vulnerable he was. And they put it in the movie. Man, that is <laughs> wow. Extra credit points received right Indeed. there. Indeed. Holy shit, dude. That's incredible. So it's a great little uh, transition, too. Just as his teacup falls over, at the exact same moment, you hear the phone ring. And it's this really loud ringing and a really loud teacup mm -hmm. spill all at the same time. And it sort of, you know, shocks you into paying attention. And then you see uh, Jack running to grab the phone. He finds out that he needs to get back to the CIA to meet with Greer. Oh, yeah. Side note. Remember when we all had landlines and that was the only way that you could like <laughs> get in touch with the, somebody else right away? <laughs> so you had to run mm -hmm. to get to the landline where wherever it happened to be located. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the days. Although I will say I still have a landline. Indeed. So that makes me slightly antiquated, but I, I do. <laughs> I do because I can't get it out of my cable contract, but whatever. You know what? You never know when the fucking grid's gonna go down. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> the problem with internet phone lines is that if the grid goes down, you don't get a phone anymore. Son of a bitch. Even that doesn't <laughs> even that doesn't cut it. No, because it goes through the cable. Damn it. So 
All right. Sorry, anyway. first world problems. Moving on. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> so Jack meets back with Greer. Greer already knows about the Caterpillar after getting the report from the Dallas. In addition, we find out that the Red October has slipped past its own fleet. Greer, all the while, is escorting Jack down to this meeting inside White House security, which is containing the National Security Advisor to the President, along with most of the Joint Chiefs. And then the bomb is sort of dropped on Jack that he is supposed to be leading this meeting. So he suddenly gets really fucking nervous. And Alec Baldwin does a really good job of sort of yes. showing how fucking freaked out he is by like <laughs> by having to mm-hmm. suddenly talk in front of all these incredibly powerful and important people. And James Earl Jones just tries to give him this quick pep talk like, you got this, man. You know all this stuff better than anybody. Just to speak your mind. <laughs> so... They go in and Jack nervously begins telling all the big wigs about the Red October and what's going on. They establish that the Red October could potentially be a first strike submarine, uh, meaning that because it's able to slip past anybody, that they could just open fire on America, you know, and nobody would be able to stop them. So the big wigs, they're all fucking freaking out to no end. And they also sort of established that. There was an entire fleet of ships moving out quickly behind the October. And at this point, there are murmurings about the room, about this potentially being an act of war. Like, it's not just the October. Like, they're all coming out. Like, why are all these boats all coming out at the same time? Like, what the hell is going on here? And Greer states that this could just be an exercise. However, then... This guy on the other end of the room, who Jack quickly identifies as Ramius' uncle-in-law, discloses that the head of the Navy in Polyarni, after receiving a letter from Ramius, immediately sent out his entire fleet in pursuit of the October to sink it. So then the room is really freaking out, because then they're like, we've got a madman on our hands. What are we going to do? You know. So as they're all discussing it, uh, Jack is sort of theorizing in his head. He's looking at the at the frames up on the screen, and he's sort of theorizes that Ramius wants to defect in order to stop the sub from being a tool for war. He's sort of figuring out based on this guy's background, you know. And and I love his like outburst. There's all these guys, all these really powerful people who are all arguing with each other, and you've got little Jack Ryan over here in the corner, and all of a sudden he <laughs> slams his hand on the desk, and he's like, "Son of a bitch!" Son and everybody's bitch. like, "What is well, little Jack over there doing?" <laughs> like, what? Then the national security advisor's like. You have something you'd like to add, Doctor Ryan? <laughs> it's he's really good, by the way. The guy that plays the Nat plays Jeffrey Pelt. Yeah, he's the character's that slimy in the book too. Yeah. Although in the book, a lot of that is the actual president of the U.S. Ronald oh. Reagan in the book. Although they don't call okay. him out as much, they couldn't have Reagan, so they used the National Security Advisor. Right. That's a minor character. Be the major character to do it. Yeah, might as well have been Reagan. So, <laughs> right. So everybody stops talking. And then after he's got their attention, he tells the room all about Ramius as far as his personality and the fact that he's not actually Russian, he's Lithuanian, and that his wife is dead and then he has no children. So he's, it's not like there'd be nothing holding him back from defecting. Mm-hmm. In addition, the day that this sub rolls out is the anniversary of his wife's death. So there's that. And then there's this one guy that's on the other end of the room that's sort of trying to take him to task about his theory. And Jack actually fights back and puts him kind of in his place. He's like, do you know (laughs) Ramius? He's like, I've met him. And 
da 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 da. And then, yeah. So after that little <laughs> altercation, Pelt sort of dismisses everyone, but he tells Jack to stay put. And as Greer's getting up to leave, he's like, Dr. Ryan, would you stay for a moment, please? I said, speak your mind, Jack, the Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what the fuck dude maybe not go that far so anyway <laughs> Greer's not in trouble so he doesn't give a shit he just leaves so <laughs> so then Pelt comes over to talk to Jack and I love this line that he says to Jack about being a politician he's like I'm a liar and a cheat which means when I'm not kissing babies I'm stealing their lollipops <laughs> so he's like but I like exactly. to keep my options open <laughs> so Anyway, he asks Jack if, in fact, Ramius intends to defect what he would do about it. So Jack lays out that he would make sure that the local fleets are aware that he's out there, that they do what they can to help Ramius, and that, thirdly, somebody needs to personally make contact with Ramius to find out his intentions. Sounds good. Where do you leave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Pelt's like, that's you, dude. That's your role here. <laughs> and he's, Jack's like, well, wait, I can't do this. Why Why me? And, and basically- I'm just and, an analyst. <laughs> yeah. And then in no uncertain terms, it's basically because he's- Expendable. <laughs> so- and with that, he's basically got three days to to figure all this out. And that's when we sort of get into the, the second act of this movie. Right. So from that point, we cut over to uh, Captain Tupolev's sub. And Tupolev is one of uh, Ramius's students, but not particularly one that he's fond or friendly with because he's <laughs> kind of an arrogant asshole, um, <laughs> which you get as you watch the movie. Yes. But he's all in a Twitter because... He just got his orders about the Red October putting out, and they're seven hours behind the rest of the fleet. And he has got a serious bit of wood sporting to go <laughs> kill his former master teacher, whatever. Yeah. You know, he's like a Sith, he's like a Sith apprentice here, man. He's just like, I gotta go kill this guy. <laughs> we're going to kill a friend. Dude, we're going to I can't even remember what his guys are, but we're going to kill a friend, Yuri. That's it. We're going to kill a friend. Yeah. He's, he's so horny for it. <laughs> he, uh, he totally is. I mean, you'd be thinking, you'd be thinking to be like, oh, Ramius? I can't believe there's no gnashing of teeth or yeah, wringing I, of hands. He's just I like, can't... oh, I can see him doing that. Let's go kill him. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, I can't kill my own father. No, it's, let's go kill it's the like, fucker. <laughs> yeah, let's all go kill our father, shall we? Uh, so we, we jump from there to uh, a meal in the officer's quarters in the Red October. Oh, I just, I love the beginning of the scene when they sort of scoot <laughs> poor dumb yes. Tim Curry out of the out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, doctor, can you uh, get me the latest pieces of... Uh, radiation testing and and right now yes right now and the other weeks too if you please <laughs> it looks like a little kid that got kicked out of the grown-ups table and back to the kids table yeah <laughs> so they get him out and they all start uh, talking about what's actually happening on the ship because all of the officers who are obviously handpicked by ramius to be on the position are all with him in the mission. Right. But, you know, first we start talking about uh, Putin being killed, the political officer. And one of uh, 
younger crew members, who is actually Russian, by the way. Um, uh-huh. He uh, comes up and says that they all should have been consulted about killing Bored, and he didn't care that he was dead. He understood the necessity of getting rid of him. They all should have been consulted. And I felt like that was a perfect opportunity for Sean Connery to pull out a Captain Kirk and say, I'll keep that under mine. <laughs> when this becomes a democracy, you know? So, but. Connery basically does it in his own way, but it's kind of ridiculous. I just love the way he eats in this scene. Mm -hmm. He looks like a lion who is just happy Mm -hmm. and content and doesn't give a fuck about anybody else. And nothing is going to affect him. He's just happy to be licking his chops and chewing away. (laughs) Because he is the dude. and He's the guy in the Russian Navy. (laughs) And everybody's there because of that. Right. So they can bitch all they want, but there's nothing they can do. They're all on board for this, and they're not turning around. And I mean, it's just, at this point we find out what the actual intent of the ship is, which is to defect, because he goes into the whole thing about, my mission started when I was handed the plans for this submarine. A submarine <laughs> with only one purpose. <laughs> so uh, they go through all of that. He tells them all, well, they start complaining about maybe they should go back. The younger guys are getting a little freaked out by it all. He yeah. says, you can't go back. I wrote a letter to Admiral Pador telling him what we're doing. Yeah, and that's when they really freak out. <laughs> uh-huh. And I love his line. He's like, personally, I give ourselves one chance in three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're frightened of the Soviet Navy, are you? <laughs> but he, So he gets through that. He dismisses all the men, tells them to go back to work. He keeps Borodin in there so they can chat a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And. Yeah, and Borden's not real happy about the, the letter either. <laughs> no, but he's on board. He's just not very happy about it. And, right. You know, he says, you, you know, we probably shouldn't have told them what we were doing, Captain. And Ramius is basically like, you know, we're not, it's not the Russians we're worried about. I trained everybody that's chasing us. We're going to be okay as far as that's concerned. Right. What we need to worry about is the Americans, because <laughs> if we get the right guy, we're going to be fine. But if we get some, Buckaroo. Buckaroo. <laughs> yeah, sure. Buckaroo. Where it's never going to work. And so, you know, that's his genuine concern is this, they can only control so much of this from where they're at. They're taking a huge leap of faith that the other side is going to figure this out and right. let them do it. So drama ensues. But then we cut to said Buckaroo <laughs> flying in a really bad weather on a mailbag plane. Just landing miserable. on an aircraft carrier. And that dude that's uh, not the co-pilot, but the navigator on the helicopter eating his yes. candy bar. Oh, this is not the worst thing I've ever seen. Man, we were pitching and rolling and we were, everybody was puke everywhere. Industrial grade waste puke. <laughs> Rick to coming, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> again, again, bit rolls that like crush. He's so right. funny in this. And Ryan's sitting in the back of this prop plane. Holding his briefcase, he's like, next time, Jack, write a damn memo. (laughs) So they land aboard the USS Enterprise. And isn't it funny that every naval vessel in movies is a USS Enterprise if it's an aircraft carrier? Because that wasn't the USS Enterprise. I just like the fact that it is called that. And you are one of the people that are reviewing this movie. Right. It just felt kind of, you know, it was meant to be. (laughs) Just so you know, the Enterprise is also the aircraft carrier that was in Top Gun even though that was not the Enterprise either. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> so theoretically, the captain on here, not Fred Thompson, but the other guy, who was the skipper of the ship, mm-hmm. could have been the bald CAG uh, commander's boss, <laughs> and Maverick could have actually, in fact, been on that boat still. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Yeah, so anyway, the Enterprise wouldn't be nowhere near Nova Scotia because as far as I know, it's a Pacific Fleet ship. Again, well, movies. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop and just move on. Um, so Jack gets on board. He meets the, the captain of the Enterprise, not James Kirk. <laughs> but I will tell you this, he was in The Next Generation. Also oh. the butler on uh, The Nanny for however many seasons of that show we're in. Um, but again, probably not important. He takes him into the Admiral's uh, quarters on board the aircraft carrier, played by none other than Senator Fred Thompson. Oh, Jesus. Fred Thompson, who only does Fred Thompson things in movies, which is play admirals and politicians, politicians like and he played them so often that he thought I can do this in real life. <laughs> and he did and he very did. well, I might add. Um, but I mean, Fred Thompson and the guy that's playing the captain. And I wish I could remember the actor's name. These are the two guys that kind of exemplify what I'm saying about how these actors acted like they were military people. Yes. Very much so. The banter between the two of them, the kind of clip tones, the way they were talking, the inside baseball stuff they were throwing at each other. All of it came off as very genuine. Yeah, the fact that he was annoyed that Jack was wearing the blue navy. The uniform. Yeah, the uniform. Like that kind of stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and while I'm not Fred Thompson's biggest fan, he does have one of the best lines in this movie. What's his plan? His plan? Russians don't take a dump, son, without a plan. <laughs> second, second best line in the movie it has been employed numerous times in my life let me tell you uh, <laughs> second best line for me the morse code one from scott glenn is my favorite <laughs> but anyway so jack's there to make his case uh that the red october is going to defect uh, the Admiral saying, look, man, we got a lot of crazy stuff going on here. We got Russian ships in, a, in an immediate proximity. Things could go bad at any second. And I really don't have time to deal with whatever this BS is that you're coming at me with. But, you know, you look exhausted. And he knows what Ryan's story is, which you'll find it after Ryan leaves. So he basically tells him, go cop a squat. Chief of the boat will get you taken care of. And he goes out. That's when the captain makes the comment. And I don't like him wearing the uniform. Right. And he's like, you see that ring on his finger? Which I've got to say right now, if the guy graduated from Annapolis, he would have known there was an Annapolis ring on Jack's finger. But we'll move it along for expo exposition's sake. And, you know, he explains in depth that, you know, Jack was uh, at the Naval Academy. Uh, he got in a helicopter accident while he was still in school. And it was so bad they had finished his last term in the hospital in a back brace that basically after going through all the surgery that he did. Right. So he's technically a Naval graduate in the movie. He just couldn't be active duty because of the damage to his back. So right. that kind of shuts the captain up a little bit, Yeah. Uh, but he still seems a little pissed off about it. Maybe he just walks around that way all the time. I, I really don't know. <laughs> Probably. Uh, but we get past that scene. We go back to the Dallas uh, where Jonesy has come up with something uh, kind of unusual that he presents to the executive officer who then brings it to the captain. And so Jonesy walks up to him with a tape recorder because, you know, tape recorders. Um, <laughs> and, and he he plays in this noise that he's hearing. And it's kind of like this. Whoa. Whoa. Like somebody was playing a Hans Zimmer theme underwater. Whoa. Whoa. And he's trying to explain, you know, that he ran it through the computer and it comes up as a magma displacement. And, you know, they, they say earlier in the film that a magma displacement may be what this sounds like because the original software was used to track 
right. earthquakes and stuff like that initially. And Mancuso looks at him like, you're losing me, man. I, I don't know what the hell you're talking about here. Right. Like, I listen to it sped up. And I'm like, did he know exactly where to cue that, where he sped it up? Or is there a speed up button on the tape? Yeah. And who would think to speed it up too? It was like, who is this? Who is Jones, man? Jones like is a genius. <laughs> well, in the book, he is. When he leaves the Navy, he creates another sonar, his own sonar company. Oh, wow. That okay. does next-gen sonar and radar, stuff like that. He's graduated from MIT and went in the Navy to get the experience on what the ships were actually doing. He went in as an enlisted person so he could learn. So that checks out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So he runs it at 10 times speed, and you can clearly hear it's mechanical when he runs it that way. It's right. Wah, 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 wah. And then, so Bacuse is like, all right. Keep going. So uh, he gets out, shows the chart where they're at. He pulls out a grease pencil and a ruler and starts writing. Here's my first contact. Here's my second contact. Here's my third contact. And if you draw a straight line from here, it goes right here to this thing called Thor's Twins. Which, which is where? Which is where they've determined that the Russians have hyper accurate scans of this trench in the ocean that they use to go fast and they call it Red Route 1. So all the submarines will go through here to avoid being captured because nobody else knows how to get around it. And so Mancuso looks at him, he's like, so you're me to tell me that you hear something that your computer is telling you is whales humping or something like that. <laughs> you did all these calculations yourself and you expect me to believe it? He's like, uh, yes, sir. He's like, <laughs> relax, Jonesy, I bought, you sold me, I bought it. So they start going into the whole thing. He gives Jonesy a warm and tender way to go. And uh, we decide, he says, plot a course for the end of Red Route 1 so we can right. see if we can catch him on the flip side. Right. So, and he asks Jonesy, if I find it again, can you find it? He's like, oh yeah, now they know what to listen for. I'll bag them for you, sir. <laughs> so then we cut back to the Enterprise where the captain's telling Ryan that he's crazy because obviously, I mean, even if it was something that was true, how are you going to get a bunch of sailors who aren't in on the plot in a Russian submarine? And he kind of outlays that maybe the officers are involved. You can't have everybody on that ship involved. Yeah, it's hundreds of people. Which, you know, gets the Ryan wheels a turning at the very right. least. Uh, we jump back to the Red October. And they're about to hit Red Route 1 mm -hmm. as part of the, regular, the normal exercise for them. <laughs> but Ramius comes in and says, speed it up. <laughs> and what does he say? Recalculate course for 20 knots. Yeah, and everybody freaks out. Right. <laughs> well, because they go through this whole thing where the, the navigator is talking with one of the other officers about, you know, they're basically running through these canyons blind. He's like, give me a stopwatch and a map and I'll get you. What do you say? I'll chart the Alps, he says, right? Yeah. And yeah. then the other guy's like, the other guy goes, yeah, if the map is accurate enough. Yeah. So they're making the normal turns that it's, as they are. And Ramius comes in, says, you know, we need to go faster. So run it up because. While he's drinking his delicate tea. While like he's drinking his tea in his teacup. Yes. <laughs> his tiny little teacup. <laughs> So they start running through Red Route 1, and there's some drama. You know, everybody's kind of leaning to the left like they're in an old Star Trek TV show. <laughs> uh, but as they're getting ready uh, to get on the next turn, they hear a gigantic boom. And uh, we cut back over to the engine room where the engineer out there reports that the Caterpillar engine has been damaged and that they can't run it anymore because it's going to overheat. Mm -hmm. So Ramius uh, begrudgingly uh, orders them back to the propellers, knowing that they won't be silent anymore and they can't, you know. Yeah, they can track them. Right, because the Russians all know how Red Route 1 works works. So we go back over there to the NSA advisor, Mr. Jeffrey Pelt, and he's talking with the Russian ambassador, who is not the ambassador from South Africa 
uh, that you might have thought he was from Lethal Weapon 2. It's totally the same guy. Diplomatic immunity. <laughs> exactly. I really wanted him to say that in this movie, too. Um, he just got but, decaffeinated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> immunity revoked. Okay. <laughs> That's definitely another movie for the other podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, the Russian ambassador is meeting with uh, National Security Advisor Pelt. Uh, the ambassador tells him that basically they've lost one of their own submarines. That the, sure, the lost a huge. Sure. Well, well, he goes on to say the ship was lost at sea. It's carrying some very important children of some very important members of the Politburo, including including one Central Committee member. That's why they've launched the entire fleet to try and find the ship. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, knowing he's full of shit, <laughs> it's like, that's terrible news. What can we do to hell? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Did you, did you see that bear trap you stepped in? It's around your ankle now, buddy. I got to chew your leg off. Now, did you catch, you know, for all you uh, 80s kids out there, did you catch the fact that Pelt's eating jelly beans? Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, well, there's the Reagan connection right 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 so we cut from there to the uh a russian bear foxtrot anti-submarine uh, plane these planes basically contract subs from the sky they find the red october and they go ahead and drop a sonu bowie in there so they can confirm it then they drop a torpedo in there to go blow up the red october because that's their job <laughs> you know while we're waiting for that to happen borden goes back find out what's happening in the engine room and they kind of come to the conclusion that the caterpillar drive was sabotaged by somebody right which means they have a saboteur aboard. saboteur uh, i love that word <laughs> saboteur but not as much as you like it when sean connery says it. that's true <laughs> you know and <laughs> here's the thing about this movie it's really on the margins of being categorized as a spy movie for this podcast but the moment that you know that there's a saboteur it's a spy movie (laughs) right you've got a a saboteur who's likely a kgb agent yeah it's a spy movie at that point so we're we're all clear we're good we're all clear now it's it's a spy movie for anybody who wants to put in the comments that it's not a spy movie exactly i'll I'll take you i'll take you on (laughs) Uh, so they realize that it's been sabotaged that means that somebody on board is also working for the KGB. So Ramius is like, go through his records, go through Putin's records, see if you can find out who it is. Right. Uh, we need to figure this out and post guards on the enter room. Gosh. But he doesn't say, make sure the guards aren't the KGB agent. <laughs> Speaking of which, did you notice that the chief of the boat on his ship is, what's his name? Oli, uh, Oli something Swedish? The guy that's uh, that was like a stunt double for Schwarzenegger and Conan and a couple of the other movies, no. the, the big burly dude with the beard. Yeah, he's oh totally. He's the one that starts them singing the Russian anthem uh, when they start singing. Oh wow! Now I'm gonna have to go back and check. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, nice. I only say that because he would have been the guy posting the guards. So he obviously was not a KGB agent. <laughs> no. Wanted to bring that up. Uh, so we bump from there to Jack Ryan taking a shower. This is a great scene. It is a great scene because he's in there leaning on the pole. The first thing he's like, yeah, if it's rescue, don't take a dump without a plan, son. <laughs> I mean, his first impression of the actual movie, he does too. Sadly, no James Greer impression, but that would have been great too. Um, and so he's in there. He's trying to suss it out. Then they cut to him jumping into the head. He's shaving. He's like, how do you get people to want to get off a submarine? 
how do you get a crew to want to get off a nuclear submarine? And then you hear the light bulb go, ping, above his <laughs> yeah. head. He goes rushing up into the CIC and he says, I know how they're going to get him off the ship, Admiral. <laughs> and the Admiral's like, not right now, Jack. I'm doing my job. Um, so he gets chastised. The captain kind of fills him in on what's been happening, that Two planes crashed into each other while they're kind of playing tag, keeping up international relations, as Maverick would say. Um, <laughs> and um, they're trying to get the wounded bird in. I was actually trying to figure out what was going on there and why that plane crashed. That that one sort of I lost in the in the mix for some reason. There was a lot of jargony stuff going on on the bridge with that. Yeah, and I think a lot of that extrapolation got lost in between all that because they walk over that fancy monitor. Mm-hmm. You know, which totally <laughs> is probable, but it, it looked it looked like it was plausible, even though I don't think it was something that was real. Right. But it was super cool how you could like digitally move around the map of where you're at. Yeah. And you know, the captain's explaining where these these Russian ships are and what's happening out there with the planes. And he makes the comment that you know, all these ships are coming here, and they're like they're looking for the Red October. It's like they drive right over them. The way that they're banging with their active sonar, they could hear my daughter's stereo and not pick it up down there, right? <laughs> yeah. And that leads Jack to go, well, why would they? So Jack, you get this, like Jack gets this look on his face. It's like they're not looking for him; they're driving him. And the captain's like, what? And he takes a little digital map thing and he rolls it up. And shows them see all the right. There's six attack boats waiting for him to go over there. And then the captain makes some sort of prophetic thing like, you know, well, your Russian skipper is going into a trap or something like that. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) I think we established that already. Yeah, thanks, genius. (laughs) And then you cut to the scene where the plane crashes into the the deck, uh, which, by the way, was not an F-14 like they indicated, but was some sort of older plane. That footage was actually from like 1963. Are you serious? Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a test craft that crashed on it. The only reason I say that is I've seen that plane crash on aircraft carriers in numerous movies. Oh, geez. Well, I mean, better that than like bad computer CGI, you know. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, and they, they did it so seamlessly because mm-hmm. it wasn't really, it was like being seen through a monitor. It wasn't actually like, this is actually happening. They made it look like what it actually was when it happened, which was a yeah. brilliant move on their part because that footage looks so bad when they cut it into things as if it was actually happening. Right. But the plane crashes and Thompson moves around. And he starts getting all, this is going to get serious. This could get deadly. This could blah, 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 blah. It's right. the worst thing ever, you know, type of thing. Just basically indicating that they're at a serious point now where if somebody makes the wrong mistake, somebody's going to shoot somebody and we're going to start World War Three. Right. So we cut from that rather intense moment back to the Dallas. This is also another good thing, man. He he really balances out that intensity yeah. with kind of some p- slower pacing and then brings it back. Yeah. And maybe that's the editor. Maybe that's less John McTiernan and the editor of the movie. But there's enough intensity that you're not overwhelmed, but there's not enough slow stuff to bore the hell out of you. Yeah, they, they find just the right balance. Exactly. So we're back on the Dallas. You see that Jones clearly hasn't slept in a very long time because he promised the captain he was going to find that boat. He sure as heck going to find that boat. Right. The other guy that's on there lays on him about, I believe there's some mystery submarine. This is the chief of the boat. And then, of course, that's right when uh, Jonesy picks it up again. Yeah. He's like holds up his hand and is like, wait a minute. Shut up. I'm doing my job, cop. (laughs) And then we, we jump over to the Red October. But now we're made aware the Caliphater is working again, which is why Jones was able to hear it again, yes. because it's specifically what he was looking for. Right. Or to let Ramius know the crew now knows about the saboteur, which is going to obviously cause more problems, because why would we have a saboteur aboard our ship? 
Right. But yeah, Ramius is like, ah, we could probably use that later. So it's fine. <laughs> you know, nothing gets Ramius down. Yeah, he's just he's like, the- it's fine. This is going to happen. He's very like that's right. The power of positive thinking <laughs> right. type of guy. He's like, we're in this, man. It doesn't matter. We'll just figure it out. You know, quit, <laughs> yeah. quit being such a baby about it. <laughs> so we got that there, and we get this this really great scene between the two of them, right? Yeah, between Borden and between Ramius, where they're kind of discussing the motivations about what's happening and kind of what Ramius's real feelings are about this and kind of where Borden is at about it. And it's funny because there's this play between this grizzled old captain who has been ground through the Soviet machine. Yeah. Who's watched his wife die at the hands of that same Soviet machine. And so it's not about hope and it's not about anything. It's about sticking it to the man. He just wants peace. Right. And preventing them from being able to do something that he's completely against. Right. Whereas Borden's got like stars in his eyes a little bit, oh, right? Oh yeah, he's he's got you dreams know? of America. He just he wants to you know have two wives in two different cities and yeah, right. <laughs> Do you think they will let me live in Montana? And I'm like, of course they will. You're going to become a famous paleontologist and dig up raptor bones. Oh wait a minute, different movie. Sorry, you, sorry. You mean, you mean I can drive across the states with no papers? Yeah. No papers. <laughs> No papers. Uh, and he eventually gets to go into that whole sol- the, the monologue that he does yeah. where he's talking about how he got there and what's motivating him. And there's this whole bonding moment that goes on between him. And then he snaps right back to being Ramius where he says, post guards at the engine room. Yeah. And watch. Who does he say? He tells him to watch somebody. I don't remember who. I don't recall. But I mean, it's funny. It's like a father and a son having a conversation to being all business right back at it again. And so uh, we jump from that. Dallas is coming in behind the right October now, and it's baffles, Seaman Beaumont. Uh, <laughs> if it has baffles, I, I do not even know if that drive drives baffles. Um, but the Red October pulls a crazy Ivan, which is basically a 90-degree turn. To clear your baffles, you turn suddenly to see if there's anyone behind you. Right. Which has the distinct advantage of if you don't time it properly, that guy can run right into you. Right. Hence the danger. Suspense. Hence, you're Um, crazy to do this, Ivan. (laughs) That's right. You crazy Ivan. Anyway, we get back uh, to the Dallas and that's when Makuso found, or well, his executive officer comes in. We got ELF traffic coming in which means that they have to go to periscope depth in order to receive the actual message. So Mancuso's pissed off because they just found the damn boat. Now they have to leave to get the ELF transmission, right? Right. So he goes up. We see Jack back on the Enterprise getting on board uh, one of those uh, helicopters. And the cab's explaining to him, if you have to ditch, blah, 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 blah. And Jack just looks like he's totally green and going to die and puke and everything else. Because up till now, he's only been on airplanes. Now he's actually going on a helicopter again. Right. <laughs> and of course, he's just miserable. He is. So he gets on there and he gets the other thing just next time, right? A damn memo, Jack. <laughs> but uh, we get the chopper flying in. Basically, we cut back into the Dallas. Uh, Mancuso and his executive officer are going up to the top to retrieve Ryan. Uh, mm-hmm. They're basically going to dangle Ryan out of the helicopter. Uh, <laughs> and then they're going to they're going to catch him with a stick. On board the uh, Dallas, and in a, they'll reel in him a in. windy rainstorm. <laughs> right, 
And, you know, they're talking about, make sure you don't touch him with that or you'll ground yourself and you'll get electrocuted. Oh my God. Um, because the, the rotors from the helicopter are generating all that static electricity. So they're in there. They got him in position. They've got little fuel left. Uh, Ryan's ordered them to go into their fuel reserve in order to stick around a little bit longer. And basically the pilot's like, we are out. We are going. And Ryan's like, all right. Hits the thing, drops himself into the ocean. Yeah, I love that. Atlantic Ocean. Which is absolutely an insane thing to do. (laughs) Right. And this is after their first attempt to try and reel him in, and he gets grounded, and the executive officer ends up shocking himself. (laughs) So they send the sub dive. They have a diver on board, each one of the submarines. I think two, actually. They send one of the divers out, one of the torpedo trunks, to go get Ryan. They bring him into the airlock, and that's where uh, Ryan... Gets to meet the commander Bancuso. And uh, I mean, that, that pretty much takes us into uh, act three, as they say in the biz. So we cut back to the the Russian ambassador, who's now talking again with the national security advisor. And this time the ambassador says that he needs to talk to the president and that the missing submarine story was not completely, quote unquote, not completely accurate. <laughs> the ambassador's version of the story about the letter from Ramius to Moscow was that he intended to fire his missiles on the United States. So that's the story he's going with. So the ambassador is now asking for the U.S. for help now in hunting down the Red October. So that's why he needs to talk to the president. So then we cut back to Jack on the Dallas with Captain Mancuso, and he's soaking wet, and the captain's super fucking irritated because he had to surface, and he had had just located the Red October, and now he had to go back up. And He's sitting there dripping wet and coughing. He's like... It's a pleasure to be on board, sir. <laughs> yeah, he's like <laughs> just ever, ever the polite guy, like despite the circumstance. Right. And Mancuso's just looking at him like he's got the plague. Uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty fabulous stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's just then that they get the word from the White House about the ambassador's story. And this is just coming off of Jack and Mancuso talking about Ramius. And Jack is saying that he thinks Ramius wants to defect. And then they get this piece of paper from some seaman comes down and gives this piece of paper <laughs> to, to Scott Glenn. And Scott Glenn's like, the whole game's just changed, dude. That's not what's happening now. So now Scott Glenn is kind of convinced that Ramius is on this like warpath and he's he's a madman controlling the Red October. So then... At this point, the Dallas quickly goes into battle mode and they make their dive back down to begin pursuit. Jack is desperately trying to convince the captain to not just blow the Red October out of the water, even going so far as to make up a fake thing about which direction they do the crazy Ivan in to like sort of convince Mancuso that he knows Ramius so well that he knows that at the bottom of the hour, when they do the crazy Ivan, they always turn uh, starboard or whatever it is. And, and even though we all know that this is a little fib and that he's just gambling that, that they actually turn the same way that he says that they're going to turn. So they pull to this loud stop during the next crazy Ivan, which alerts the red October to its presence, but they're ready to fire. And I love this little standoff they have where Ramius doesn't open the torpedo doors as a way to sort of try and communicate with the Dallas. Like this is, Not our intention. We're not, we have peaceful and, you know, we're not trying to kill anybody or, you know, so they have this little standoff thing. And as a result, 
because Mancuso sort of understands what's going on here. He's like, your boy Ramius here is a cool customer or whatever. And so they go to the surface so they can communicate with each other via the Morse code using the periscopes. And that's when we get this the the cool little one ping thing where <laughs> where one uh, ping only. <laughs> so they they basically Jack instructs them to say if your intentions aren't hostile let us know and then Ramius instructs to say send one ping for it. and then of course his cover for sending the one ping is to figure out the distance to target right but the single ping is basically his way of saying yes <laughs> we're not hostile and then from there they send another message where Scott Glenn is just like are you serious you are you are we really doing this we're really sending this message and Jack's like yes just just do it and so they send another message saying if you want to defect God, what does he say well he basically tells them if you intend to defect this is where we want you to go so we can stage it to happen exactly and it's what's so great about this is right after they send this message you get this shocked look from Ramius he like closes the the periscope and backs away quickly backs away from the, from right. the periscope like oh my god like they know exactly what i want to do right that sort of thing well and that's after that's after ryan going i need a map i need a map and he starts throwing maps oh, that's right the navigator that's right. station yeah he's like running all over trying to figure out where to stage this fake rescue or whatever right so he gives them the coordinates and then as they're sending this message in Morse, he asks Ryan, like, how did you know that they were going to break Starbird on the crazy Ivan? And, <laughs> and Jack's like, I didn't. It was just a guess. <laughs> I had a 50% chance of being right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I love the line from Mancuso. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Ryan. My Morse is so rusty. I may be sending dimensions on Playmate of the Month. <laughs> so, so so then you know after we've basically established that they're in an agreement to do this staging of this fake rescue 20 hours go by before suddenly we see the alarms go off on the red october that supposedly there's a nuclear reactor emergency and so i love how you know dumb old tim curry trying to talk sense into ramius uh <laughs> and ramius this is where Sean Connery, again, yes. does a really good job as sort of, he's acting as Ramius, but Ramius playing dumb to this, like he doesn't know any better. Like he plays the dumb old captain role, acting like, right. like he doesn't know how to correctly avoid the radiation or that there's even a saboteur on board. He's, he acts like he's ignorant to that as he's a, shab a saboteur. What? <laughs> who, who said anything about a saboteur? And then, Tim Curry's like, Captain, please. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and it's all in an attempt to fluff up the, the doctor. Yeah, to make him so feel that like the doctor confident. will help sell it. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so from there, they finally, at this point, Ramius is quote unquote convinced to surface, which is what they were going to do anyway. Right. So then we they get to the surface and we see all these rafts being inflated on the top of the submarine. Ramius is making sure all of the crew, he's like asking for a head count to make sure everyone is off the ship before the rescue right. so that, you know, in the hopes that maybe they get the saboteur off, which fat chance. But anyway, so right. from here, there's an approaching U.S. Uh, frigate ship that communicates to stay where you are and don't submerge. And just as this is happening, like all the rafts are going off the top of the submarine and Ramius is sort of making himself look like the hero. And he tells Tim Curry that, you know, you're in charge 
now and that I'm going to stay here with the officers. Yeah. And submerge the submarine. And he makes it look like he's signing his own death warrant. And Tim Curry's like completely convinced of he's like, you will get the medal of, of, uh, the order of Lenin for this the, captain. Yeah. You will get the order of Lenin for this captain. He's like all suddenly like, that's my captain going down with the ship. Yeah. You know, all the poetic <laughs> and shit. So, so at this point, a helicopter flies off the frigate ship since the October is submerging again and drops a torpedo missile to hit the red October. But just as they're about to detonate the torpedo, you see a finger hit the trigger inside the frigate ship. And you realize that the, the finger is Greer's finger detonating on purpose the torpedo early so that it doesn't blow up the submarine because now they're sort of like they're in on it <laughs> this, is, this is where we get a nice little spy trope now understand commander that torpedo did not self-destruct you heard it hit the hull and i was never here <laughs> right as he shows him his id yeah, he shows him his ID. He's like, this never took place. You know, that whole thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at this point, Jack, uh, Captain Mancuso, and Jones, they get into a rescue sub that then floats over to the Red October, where we get this rather awkward introduction to each one of them. <laughs> and I like how when they first hook up to the October and they open their porthole, and they knock on the October with a hammer or something. And then the, yeah. the, the Russian guy opens the porthole. He's like, Americans. <laughs> he's like all excited. He's like, Americans. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing. So we do another reintroduction in the language thing here. Yes. Right. Because the Americans go back on the boat. They're speaking English. The Russians are speaking Russian. Yes. But they get the little detente bit where you know Ryan's like, "Can I get a smoke?" And the, yeah. the engineer gives him the smoke. And look at them; he's turning green. He says in Russian, and everybody yes. laughs. And uh, Ryan says something in Russian uh, to the effect of, uh, "He said he flies in Russian." Ramius says something back. No, you speak Russian. He's like, "A little." It's good to know your enemy sometimes, isn't it? In yeah. Russian. And then Connery pops up with it is. <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny, which is the one point where it merges and his Scottish accent just <laughs> ruins the. Right. It ruins the mirage of this guy being Russian. It's like, oh, it's just Sean Connery <laughs> talking in English now. <laughs> so, and, well, and you also get the next, the second Buckaroo reference where he looks at Mancuso's pistol and he leans oh, over yeah. to the board and he goes, Shabala Burja Busta, Buckaroo. And that's what makes Ryan laugh. Yeah. Because what's so funny, Ryan? Uh, well, the. Uh, the, the captain seems to think you're some kind of a cowboy, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great little moment. And it really sells how truly awkward it is. Like it right. gave of, it was so awkward that the viewer felt awkward. Like I was <laughs> right. You know, at, at first I'm like, God, this is awkward. I'm like, Oh wait, this is how I'm supposed to feel. Like <laughs> it's like, most movies don't actually make you feel awkward when they create, you know, when they have an awkward moment like this or when they're trying to sell you on an awkward moment. Right. But you're so involved in this particular scene that you feel like you're part of it rather than just watching it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that breaking of the ice is it just it works so well, like, you know, between choking on the cigarette and, and the little exchange back and forth and, and the fact that, you know, Jack says, I don't know if you remember this, but I met you. 
you know, a few years ago with your wife, I'm very sorry, you know, sort of, you know, basically sort of says, I know, I know about you, like you're a famous guy. Yeah. So, and then Ramius sort of strolls over and formally asks for asylum for him and his crew. And right at this moment, that's when we hear a torpedo being fired on them. And the Russian guys are like, why are you firing on us? And then Jones is like, no, he's like listening in. And based on the tone the, yeah, the, the pitch, it's too the, high. The pitch is too high for it to be an American torpedo, so it has to be a Russian one. And of course, we end up finding out it's Tupolev. So the first torpedo that had, that it, sort, it just sort of goes past them. And I guess it has like the wrong range and misses, like it explodes too late. And so meanwhile, sirens are going off on the frigate ship and the crew, the crew of the October all falsely think that Ramius is fighting the Americans. <laughs> and they're all, they're fighting right. the Americans and they're all, yay! <laughs> like rooting for Ramius, like, well, like he's this Russian, you know, like hero. Right. Like, right. Well, and, and I mean, it, it, you get to, to, to go into the thing that the torpedo doesn't necessarily miss him so much as Ramius turns them into the torpedo because he knows if he can make up the distance before it arms itself. Well, that's the next one, though. I don't remember there being a first torpedo. Yeah, Is there, are there two? Yeah. I thought there was the one, and then Skarsgård launches the other one that they take the safeties off completely. Oh, maybe there are just two. Because I, I think sworn... you're thinking you think you're thinking of the torpedo from the destroyer helicopter. Well, no, because this is the Russian one because they identify it as being a higher pitch. But is that just what he's listening to on sonar, and that's what, and mm-hmm. so it just hasn't gotten there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, so that's what it is. Because they, they, yeah. So they turn into it, and there's that whole thing about Ryan not being a an actual. Operator. Yeah, and he does, <laughs> and he doesn't know how to even <laughs> operate this. Uh... I'm not in the Navy. I just write books. Right. Ramius is just like, well, just shit down and do what I tell you to do. (laughs) So, three, eight, five. (laughs) So, yeah, they they turn and go right towards this torpedo. They head right for it and they go full power, in fact, over full power. And everyone thinks he's insane. Right. Except for the only person that picks it up is Mancuso's, like, Actually, Mancuso doesn't even pick it up until no. after it happens. Until after it right. happens, he's like, oh, okay, I see what he did there. So they essentially speed past the torpedo before it can detonate. And yeah, the frigate ship during all this is absolutely freaking out. They don't understand what's going on either. So after right. they get out of that, then almost right afterwards, that's when the KGB saboteur, the cook, it's always the cook. <laughs> it's always the cook. Always the cook. So he starts shooting, and then in the crossfire, Vasily gets shot, and all those Montana dreams are gone, and the and the polygamy yeah. and the polygamy and everything. It's all. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen Montana. <laughs> so, R.I.P. Sam Neil. So, so after that, after that sad face, from here. Jack and Ramius go after the cook <laughs> while Mancuso, Jones, and the Russian officers, they sort of take evasive action, start operating the, the sub and essentially hiding behind Tupolev's ship. And then very quickly, as Ramius and Jack are going after the KGB guy, Ramius gets hit in the shoulder. And so Jack has to go after the cook <laughs> and... <laughs> And Ramius is like, watch what you shoot in here because some things don't like to be hit with bullets or something like that. <laughs> so, so he gets all sneaky, sneaky, trying to go after the, the KGB guy, the cook. 
And I just love when he he climbs up and he's crawling on the rafters or whatever it is. He's doing that Sean Connery impression of right. some things don't work <laughs> well with bullets or something like That's that. That's right. That's right. His second impression of the movie. It's his best and one, too. It's really good. I agree. And can I point out to you that that entire scene in the back looked like it was in Die Hard? Yes. Except instead of crawling in the air ducts, he's crawling on that ladder under the pipes. <laughs> Come out to the gas. <laughs> have a few laughs. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay, mother cooker. <laughs> so then we get some help. It is sort of almost like a MacGuffin. We get some help from the Dallas, who sends off a uh, torpedo as well as countermeasures to distract the first torpedo. And then the Dallas like resurfaces really, really quickly. <laughs> and again, the Russian crew thinks that Ramius has scared the Dallas out of the water. And they're like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> so... The Dallas uh, torpedo explodes, but the torpedo from Tupolev is still looking for a new target now, looking again for the October. But then meanwhile, we we cut back to inside the October where Jack does some more sneaky sneaky and he, he comes up behind the cook and he's able to kill the cook, which is interesting too, because that was the very first moment in the entire movie. We've gone this whole movie and this is the very first time we've seen Jack Ryan do anything physical, like any sort right. of- physical you know action hero-y shit this is <laughs> we're like you know 10 minutes away from the end of the movie and he finally you know has a gun in hand and is doing something so but he gets as it, done, it should be as it should be so he shoots the cook and then he helps ramius get back into the command center so they get him back into the control room and at this point the torpedo is now zeroing in on the red october but they navigate head on towards tupolev's ship and then they just kind of go above them so that the torpedo goes for his ship instead. And then it, it boom. <laughs> Be goodbye. You idiot. You've killed us all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you arrogant bastard. You've killed us all. <laughs> exactly. So then we cut back to the office of the uh, national security advisor, and he's talking to the <laughs> Russian ambassador again, uh, saying it'll be some time before it would be possible to recover any remains of the ship. I mean, this, you know, um, and that's the, a lot of water. <laughs> and that's when the ambassador looking very embarrassed tells him that he's lost another ship. <laughs> those silly Russians. <laughs> they just can't Crazy keep track Russians. of those. They just can't keep track. Are you of trying to tell me, Mr. Ambassador, that you've lost another submarine? <laughs> I know he just plays it. So like, I don't, you know, <laughs> plays it so cool. So then we get the final little scene, which <laughs> is some bad blue screen green screen, whatever you want to call it. It's it's the only part in this movie that CGI sort of touches and for the lesser. But regardless, aside from that, if you can cast that aside, that cheesiness of bad CGI, we actually get a really nice little ending scene. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and day for night lighting too. That's another one of my pet peeves in mm -hmm. movies is, is day for night lighting. So <laughs> at least they tried to sell it with the full moon. You don't usually get that. Yeah. At least that way it's sort of believable that there's a, a spotlight on them. <laughs> you know? Right. So we get the starlit night and the surface red October is just sort of floating its way along the uh, Penobscot river in Maine and Jack and Ramius are up there along with, I think Mancuso is up there as well. And uh, I think there's four guys up there. I can't remember who the other guy is. But anyway. I think Jones is up there as well. Yeah, yeah. With Mancuso in the back. Yeah. So they're just kind of out for this midnight stroll in the red October. 
And um, they're up on top looking out outside. And Jack is talking about how he grew up around here and that he used to fish around here. And this, of course, is sort of music to Ramius's ears based on when we heard about Ramius talking with Borodin earlier in the movie when they're in their cabin and they're talking about, you know, what they want to do after they defect and all that sort of stuff. And Ramius talked a little bit about fishing. And that's when Ramius is sort of like, you haven't even asked me about the why. And then we get some very colorful, poetic language from Ramius recites. I couldn't tell you, you know, everything that he says, but. He, he attributes it to Christopher Columbus, but according to the trivia, Christopher Columbus did not say that the writer made it up and attributed it to Christopher Columbus. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, anyways. <laughs> Some nice flowery language, you know, that just sort of confirms everything that we've all been talking about, about basically not wanting to start a war and just... Right. So after his very flowery explanation, Jack says, welcome to the new world, sir. And we end with Jack and then it cuts to we end with Jack finally getting some good sleep on a plane headed home. (laughs) That's right. And there we are. With all the the chorus singing as he flies back. Like, he is an angel. (laughs) So, yeah. So, that's The Hunt for Red October. Good movie. It's a real good movie. Gosh. So, yeah. My final thoughts. I mean, I don't really have any... Aside from the bad green screen at the very end, I don't have any criticisms of this movie. It's pretty damn good. I mean... yeah. And we've been scathing in our last several episodes about all the things wrong with the, you know, the movies. And granted, this is something that was already written in reality. The book was supposed to sound like reality. It was based in reality. And so the movie is right. going to be based in reality. So it's everything is more plausible. So, right. but even as movie making, it's great movie making. I mean, holy shit. From the music to the photography to dialogue even. I mean, yeah. The casting, the casting. I mean, it's just solid Cold War movie. Is it a spy movie? Well, the CIA's in it. It's on the fringe. And so. the KGB's in it. And there's elements to it. But at right. the end of the day, it's a Cold War movie. And I could argue that any Cold War movie is probably a spy movie if you look at it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that is what Cold War is. that's right (laughs) now i will say that i really i leaned into this movie on my first viewing of it to try and find things to poke holes into because Mm -hmm. i love this movie so much and the thing that happened is is about 20 minutes into the movie i forgot that i was supposed to be picking on the movie and i didn't (laughs) pick it up didn't pick it up again until the very end when the their torpedoes are flying all over the place like damn it right (laughs) so the second viewing I went in with the same, and I, I really did try to pick holes in it. Mm-hmm. And other than little niggly things like really loud dot matrix printers or, you know, bad green screening. Or staying behind the baffles. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but that's a little inside baseball. And even that's grounded in reality to a degree. <laughs> yeah, it's it's legitimate. I mean, there wasn't a toad array coming off the back of that sub, so they probably could have. <laughs> Pulled that one off. Yeah. I mean, everything about it made so much sense that you really can't find anything to pick on it about. No, no, it's just a good movie. It's just, and again, Sean Connery, man. I think about at the time too, when this came out, this movie wasn't really on my radar when it came out. I was like a mm-hmm. junior and I was like a junior in high school when this came out. And so I really didn't even see it until years later when I could like rent it 
And right. But I do remember when it first came out, you know, Sean Connery was like bigger than God. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, he had his sudden, he'd had his renaissance with uh, the untouchables where he won the Academy Award. Right. So he was getting plum rolls left and right at yeah. that point. But at the same time, this is a movie that he could have just phoned in and he didn't. He, yes. He absolutely he crushes it. He actually takes on this character and doesn't just do Sean Connery being Sean Connery in this movie. He really right. is Ramius in this movie. And, and that is the role for me, at least, that sells this whole movie. Granted, everyone right. in the cast is great, but. Now, I want you to just for a moment, imagine if Harrison Ford had been in this movie like the intended, because it would not have been as good a movie. We all know I pray to the, the altar of Harrison Ford. Maybe we don't, but now we do. And I love him in just about everything, but you needed Sean Connery to be the guy in this movie, not Jack Ryan, even though it's Jack Ryan's movie. Yes. And so getting an actor who could play it much more subtle, like Alec Baldwin did, is what sold the film because he literally would have had Henry Jones Jr. butting heads with Henry Jones Sr. the whole time. Because the two of them are lead actors. Exactly. That is, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's like, if you can't have two stratospheric starring actors in the same movie and expect, you have to have one person that is the focal point. Right. And Ramius is such an interesting character that you need that person to be, to be the focal point, not Jack. Jack is not necessarily the main character in this movie anyway. No, he's... He's the force that's driving all of the narrative, but he's not the protagonist of the book exactly. or, or the book or the movie for that matter. Right. Um, he's just the narrator, more or less. He's moving the events from point A to point B. Um, um, and I mean, it, it would have been the same way if you'd had Harrison Ford as Jack Ryan and hired some older but less well-known actor to be Ramius. Then you've got Jack Ryan stepping all over it. And Brian just isn't that guy in this book. Yeah. Brian's that way in Patriot Games. He's that way in Clear and Present Danger. But in Huff Red October, which is technically the first book that came out, although Huff Red October is the first book that came out, but he had written Patriot Games before, mm. and it's actually a prequel. But the book, the Huff Red October, was supposed to be a Jack Ryan book, but it never really was because he wasn't the story. Exactly. It was a continuation of his story from Patriot Games. So you knew who Jack Ryan was. You had to know who Marco Remus was to make you give a shit about what was happening. Right. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. And, and, uh, you know, while we're on the, uh, we were talking earlier about how this movie is just barely on the fringes of what some might consider a spy movie. Our next endeavor (laughs) is going to get pretty silly. And some might say that it's not a spy movie, but I say the spies are in the title. So it's a spy movie Uh because we're going to get super silly and do Spies Like Us next, (laughs) which is going to be spectacular. I'm curious to to see how we are able to deal with something that is essentially spoofing what we normally try and do. Exactly. We're we're not going to be able to necessarily pick it apart for its legitimacy because it's it's not meant to be legitimate anyway. <laughs> right. But I suppose if we if you look at it as a subsection, a subgenre of the spy film, which is the comedy spy film, of which there yes. are many. Yes. Maybe we could grade it on its own terms. Yes, indeed. Know? We may have to we may have to brainstorm a new <laughs> measuring tool for <laughs> for this next well, endeavor. I think I think right now we've established what the best kind of movie is going to be for a spy movie. Oh, yeah. This one. 
I think we've hit so, the I think we've hit the high water mark. <laughs> <laughs> so before we sign out today, I wanted to make a quick bulletin for people listening. As the show begins to mature a little bit here on the CIC, we would love to hear from you, the listener, whether it's a movie you'd like us to review or a comment about the show or really anything. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have a thought or idea or critique for us, really anything, please email us at CICDeadDrop at gmail.com. That's all one word, no spaces, CICDeadDrop at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoy the podcast, it would help us tremendously if you were able to give us a shiny new five-star rating on iTunes to help us rate better and show up quicker in the search for shows of this nature. So we truly hope to hear from you and get your engagement. But for now, join us next time on Central Intelligence Cinema. I'm Ben. I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mail.